You're listening to the Covenant Original Series, The Core Initiative. Today we dive into our first core value. We invest in life change. God has been faithful. God is faithful. God will be faithful. Amen? God has been faithful. God is faithful. God will be faithful. Amen? We believe that about our God. We believe that he is faithful. We believe that he is consistent. We believe that he is good. We're grateful for his goodness. We're grateful for his faithfulness. We're grateful for the fact that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for us. He made a way for us in a way that we could not have gotten to God in any other way, any other manner. And for that, we are eternally grateful as a church. Amen? As a church, just so you know, Maybe you were raised in a church, or maybe you're new to a church. Maybe this is your first time here, first time in a long time. But the fact of the matter is this. Here's how we define church. A group of imperfect people gathering together to worship a perfect God. Amen? So we're not asking you to be perfect. We're not asking you to, 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 to look a certain way or, or dress a certain way. You can't wear Michigan stuff here. But apart from that... I mean, we're just, because well, we're mainly talking to Christian people. So, I mean, apart from that, we're, we're glad that you're here. No, no, no. Uh, we're walking into this new series, The Core Initiative, and we're asking the question this. If God has been faithful to us, what would it look like if a church was completely faithful to him? What would it look like for us if we were just baseline obedient as a church? None of this 20% of us doing 100% of the work. You know that, Right? On average, 17 to 20% of, of a church, which is once again a collection of people, a gathering of people, a church is nothing more than a, a gathering of people together uh, for the glory of God. But normally, it's 17 to 20% of a church gives 100% of its finances. 17 to 20% of a church actually serves in any type of a capacity. 17 to 20% um, goes to an outreach activity. And what we're saying is this. What would it look like if a church gave 100%? What would it look like if a church was just baseline obedient? Here's what I know. Here's what I know. I grew up in a pastor's house. And and, and because I grew up in a pastor's house, we had missionaries that stayed with us. We had singing teams that stayed with us. We had quartets that stayed with us, traveling evangelists that stayed with us. We had all these people staying with us. And so I was always privy to hear these incredible stories about what God was doing around the world. And I remember having missionaries from Scotland stay with us. And and we were sitting around our dining room table and talking, and I was just a little guy, and I was just listening to these stories about these amazing revivals that were taking place in Scotland. And then I remember hearing a, 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 a husband and a wife who were from Southeast Asia, they came and they were telling us some things that were happening. I was, I was maybe seven or eight years old, and I remember hearing these stories about how, how people were standing in line to get into church, and the churches were packed out, and they were having church, church services for days upon days. And I was like, what? I couldn't even wrap my head around it. And they were seeing not just like families come to Christ, but like entire communities come to Christ. And I don't know, I know we don't have like a, maybe like a modern day example of that in America, right? Like to some extent. But my question is like, why don't we? We know from scripture that God longs to see all people restored to him. 
says that it breaks his heart when people enter into eternity without him. And we know that for a fact. So here's, here's what we know. We know that God loves people. We know that God sent Jesus to die for people so that they could know him. We know that, yes? Yes. We know that we are supposed to be obedient in sharing our faith. And as we talked about last week, we don't always do that. In fact, rarely do we. Uh, about 90% of people who are followers of Christ will never share their faith with anybody. That's a pretty bad statistic. 90%. So he, over here we have God is wanting people to know him, and we are commanded to be obedient. And here's the thing. We still see God move in powerful ways, don't we? Last week alone, we had four or five people who made first-time decisions to follow Jesus Christ. The week before that, we had two or three people. A couple weeks ago, we had like 15 people who made decisions to follow Jesus. We're seeing God move in our church. Now, I got a bunch of friends who are pastors, and they're telling me like, yeah, we had people come to Christ today. Yeah, we, we, we were able to help start a church. Yeah, I mean, I talked with Pastor Jason, who we helped uh, commission them, Church in the Wild, out in Westerville, and, and he said, we had over 100 people show up to our launch service. We had people meet Jesus. It was awesome. So we see God moving. That's my point. You get that, right? We see God moving in spite of our lack of obedience. We see people coming to Jesus despite the fact that we don't really personally share our faith. We see new churches and new works beginning in spite of the fact that we really don't step out too much to help. My question that I want to ask today is, if God moves in spite of us, what could God do if we were just obedient? So we pray these big, bold prayers. What would it be like to not only pray big, bold prayers, but move in big, bold obedience? That's what I want to see. And so I'm gonna ask over the next 30 days that you as a church, that me as your pastor, that we as a collection of imperfect people worshiping and serving a perfect God, that we would just come together and try to be baseline obedient. Just over the next 30 days. They can go back to being bad. Whatever, okay? But just over the next 30 days because I want to see what will happen. Don't you? Don't you want to see what God could do? That God would do? God will do? We know that God responds to our obedience with faithfulness and even more increasing goodness. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus speaks about this. He says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good gifts? things to those who ask him. Turn to your neighbor and say, good. I find it interesting that Jesus defines God the Father as good. And why that's interesting is because for most of us, we get our understanding of who God is from our earthly father. And, and so if you were raised in a home where your dad was, was very militant, very, uh, very strong disciplinarian, right? Your view of God, we've spoken about this before. Your view of God is probably gonna be that of a God who is very militant, very strong, very kind of thumb on you. Uh, apart from that, maybe you have a father who is, is more lenient. You know, maybe he says like, don't do that or I'm gonna, you're gonna regret it. And then you do it and he does nothing about it, right? No follow through. 
Maybe your view of God is that he's very passive, that you can just kind of slip one under. You know what I mean? He's not gonna really get mad. He might just yell, but his, his bark is a lot worse than his bite. Maybe you were raised in a home where you didn't have a father. Maybe you have an absent father, and so you wrestle with this, like, is God there? Is he really here? What's going on? And I get that. But I want you to know, wherever you stand, and this is a different sermon for a different time, we should get informed on who God is from Jesus. And Jesus states that he's a good father. Amen? Would anybody testify to that, we serve, that, that fact that we serve a good father? Amen? Anybody? Is God good? Has God been good to you? Are we sitting here talking openly in a public place about Jesus Christ? God is good. God is amazing. He's a good father. He really is. He's a good dad to us, which brings us to point number one. Point number one is this. Because God is a good father, we have everything that we need to accomplish everything he's called us to do. We have everything that we need to accomplish everything God has called us to do. And in this realm of investing in life change, and that's what we're talking about today, is investing financially in life change here in your local church, being obedient to the call that God has placed on us to to give sacrificially and generously, um, I, if we have everything that, that we need to accomplish everything God has called us to do, um, this is kind of an issue. And I, and I think it's an issue because we've bought into this thing that we call the when-then myth. Do you know what I'm talking about? The when-then myth? It's like, well, when I get there, then I will do this. When I, when I get over here, then I can do this. You know what I'm talking about? Like, we apply it to everything, by the way. Well, when I get this job, then I'll be happy. Well, when I get married, then I can relax. Well, when I, when I get that, that amount of money, then I can give. No, you won't. No, you won't. Because the when-then myth is a lie. It is empty. You never get the then. <laughs> like you're always chasing the when. You're always consistently chasing it over and over and over. And so what happens is this. Listen now, don't miss me. People end up justifying bad behavior. And they know it's bad behavior, but they justify it because of the when-then myth, but it's never realized. So it's like this. Well, when our schedule slows down, we'll get to church. No, you won't. Well, when I have more time, I'll spend it with my kids. No, you won't. When I get more money, then I will help people who are in need. You get my, you get my point, right? You see, and we... We justify these shortcuts over ethics. We, we justify a lack of relationship with Christ because of our busyness. Meanwhile, our relationship with Jesus goes down the tubes. Meanwhile, we're so busy and we justify, well, I'm just trying to work for my family. And it's getting, but meanwhile, your children are growing up and they don't have a relationship with you. The when-then myth is a complete and utter lie. What you have to understand is this. The moment that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior in your life, you already have everything that you need to accomplish everything he's called you to do. This includes sharing your faith, taking dominion over sin in your life. Let me just pause there. Because for a lot of us, we don't think that we can overcome that hidden secret sin that's in your life. Some of you are addicts. And you're addicted to various things. And you actually, when it comes down to it, you don't think you have what it takes to, uh, to conquer that addiction, do you? 
What I want you to know is that you have everything that you need to accomplish everything God has called you to do. God has not called you to be an addict, amen? God has not called you to be an addict of the mind. God has not called you to be an addict in terms of drugs and alcohol. God has not called you to be a slave to anything apart from him. And so because of that, the spirit that lives within you, you have everything you now need to accomplish everything he's called you to do, up to and including overcoming addiction in your life. And that's because of the power of the Holy Spirit within you. He moves and he works. The problem is we're so busy and so inundated and we carry devices that we're continually staring at all the time. We don't hear the voice of God who's calling us to slow down, be quiet, just be obedient. You're searching for your worth in everything except the one place you already have it, in me. The when, then myth. There's a story in scripture. I love it. It's about this boy who comes to Jesus. Jesus is standing in front of thousands of people. You know this story. One of the first ones you learn in church, right? He's standing in front of thousands of people. And they're all hungry. And the disciples are like, Peter, wasn't that your job to like order pizza? And Peter was like, wasn't my job. It was Andrew. And Andrew's like, not me. I thought we were having tacos. And that's not really in the Bible, but you get my point. I like to think it is. Uh, and they're all hungry, and there's thousands of people. And this little boy comes up to Jesus, and he's got a couple pieces of bread. He's got a couple fish, and Jesus says, this is good enough. And he breaks it, and he breaks the, you know, and he prays, and he hands out. And it says that everybody, thousands of people, performs this miracle. But the faith that this little boy has, it's funny when you talk about kids, because in Scripture, there's a, a passage where a bunch of kids are trying to get to Jesus, and Jesus is sitting down, you know, and he's sharing, and, and all the adults, the important people are around Jesus. And these little kids try to break through and get to Jesus, and they're like, get, get back, kids. This is adult stuff. And Jesus is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let the little kids come to me. In fact, I'll tell you this. Unless you have the faith like a child, you'll never even see God. Unless you have faith like a little child, you'll never even get into the kingdom of heaven. Because there's something about a child's faith that is just awe-inspiring, isn't there? I remember when I was first teaching my son Noah to, to swim. He's much older now, but at that time, he was just a little guy, just a little guy. He was three years old. And uh, I would go stand in the deep end of this pool that we had a pass at. We went in the evening, and there's nobody else there. And I would stand in the deep end, and I would hold out my arms, and he was standing on, on the ledge, and his little, his just his little like bird-like legs, you know, they're just like knocking back and forth. Of course, he had goggles, and the goggles were like the entire size of his face. Do you know what I mean? And he's standing there, and, and I would yell, jump! And without hesitation, he would just jump. He would just jump right out, knowing that he couldn't swim, knowing that if I moved that he fell in, he was going to die because he couldn't swim. It's the deep end. He would just jump every single time. I wonder when is the last time you had faith to step out like that? When is the last time God said, jump, and you went fine, and you just jumped? When is the last time God said, jump, and you just went for it? You know what happens with most, most of us? God says, jump into obedience, and you're like, okay, maybe. I'll be obedient here. I can be obedient in going to church, and I can be obedient in doing this, but, but God, not here, here. See, obedience means that we trust 
and we follow and we do what God calls us to do. We like to think of ourselves as obedient, but I'll tell you this. If I ask my children, hey guys, we've got some chores today. I need you to feed the animals. I need you to clean up the yard and I need you to clean your rooms. And they say, okay. And they go and they take care of the animals and they go and they take care of the yard, but they don't clean their rooms. Is that obedience or disobedience? It's disobedience. You say, well, they did a couple things. Yes, but obedience isn't just doing a couple things. Obedience is following it through to completion. Partial obedience is disobedience. (laughs) A partial lie, a partial truth. That's the best one, right? You hear this in court all the time. Well, they shared a half truth. Oh, you mean a lie. That's, That's what that is. Well, there was a partial truth that took, that's a lie. A partial truth is a lie, right? Partial obedience is disobedience. And when it comes to our finances and investing in life change, many of us live in outright disobedience. And we wonder why we don't feel God moving. We wonder why we don't hear the voice of God. We want, and yet we're standing in outright disobedience to God. God calls us to childlike faith. God calls us to move. And, and, and I think that it's interesting too. I, I think this is interesting because we do always have this justification, like we're putting it off, like we're gonna do it. And then some of us think like we can't do it. We could never do it, right? We could never invest. And I heard an old pastor say this one time and he said, um, and of course he, he was older. He, he was good though, man. He was really good. He said, I hear people say I would if I could, but I'd like to hear people, but, I, but faith actually says you could if you would. Let me say that again. He said, I hear people say I would if I could. So in the realm of finances and giving, I would if I could, but faith says you could if you would. And they want to say this. He went on to say this. You could forgive if you would forgive. That's good, isn't it? Listen up. But you won't forgive so you can't forgive. You could have joy if you would rejoice. You could be free if you would be free. You could make it if you would endure. You could move forward if you would let go. You could invest if you would invest. And he said, when you put it in God's hands and step out on faith and say, I can't, but God can, so I will, I know that he'll catch me because he's good. I love that. Like, why are we so limited? Don't we know we have an unlimited father? Why do we live with limitations? Why do we only try to fill this life with stuff when God called us to live for that life? Why? I love uh, this communicator, Pastor uh, Francis Chan. You guys heard of him before? Great book, uh, Crazy Love, um, and, and a couple other books he's written. Fantastic. He does this illustration where he brings this rope up on stage, and he has a little piece of tape on the end of it. It's like this big. And then this rope like wraps around the entire auditorium. And he says, this is eternity, and you're living for this. And this rope wraps around over. It's the longest rope you've ever seen. He's like, this is what God has called us to, and yet we invest and live for this. And, and, and like, I understand like, that you want to say, and I want to say that God is the God of my life. But the fact of the matter is, if, me, if you show me your bills, if you show me your bank account, 
I can very quickly tell you what or who the God of your life is. Now, I know that might be hitting a little too close to home, but I'm not wrong. (laughs) Because where we spend our money speaks the most about what our God is. Where we spend the most of our time speaks about who our God actually is. Now, here's the problem. You're hearing me talking about money, and I'm talking about obedience. You hear me say money, but I'm talking about obedience. And, and what's more is that I don't actually think money's the issue. Like, I don't, if you have money, that doesn't make you evil. You could just be an evil person with money, but I'm, then just because you have money doesn't mean you're evil. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean that you've done something wrong. I don't, I don't believe that at all. Scripture talks all throughout Scripture. There's wealthy people that help the ministry of Jesus, wealthy people that further, further the cause of, of the gospel. It's fantastic. The problem isn't money. You know what I think the problem is today? Comfort. The God of, Amer- of America, the God of our culture is not money. It's, it's comfort. And this is a real problem <laughs> Do you know why? Because the only place that we grow is in a season of uncomfortability. And so we say, God, use me. God, do a work in me. God, I surrender and submit my life. And God's like, yes. And he responds because he's faithful. And he begins to pull us out of our comfort so that we will grow. And then what do we do? We absolutely lose our minds. God, what are you doing? God, what is going on? God, I prayed, I surrendered my life, and now you're making me uncomfortable? This especially happens, like this continuously happens throughout your life. You get that, right? Like it doesn't end. It doesn't stop. You could have been walking with Jesus for 30 or 40 years, and God is going to pull you out of a comfortable place. You look at the life of Paul, and Scripture says that Paul, he says, I have a thorn in my side. And he, and he says, God, that you would remove the thorn in my side. And God's like, nope, I'm going to keep you dependent on me. Why? Because we grow when we're uncomfortable. Why is that? It's because when we're out of our comfort zone, we have to rely on God. If I'm in my comfort zone, I don't have to rely on God. I get to rely on me. Well, guess what? No growth happens there. So God pulls us out. But anyway, back to my point, we say, God, I surrender. I I give my life to you. And then God's like, fantastic, let's move. I've got so much for you. And because I'm a good father, I'm gonna take care of you and watch out for you and bless you and protect you. But you gotta learn what it means to depend on me. And he pulls us out of our comfort zone. We're like, whoa, that hurts, God. What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? I thought I gave you my life. I thought I surrendered. And this is what happens. I'm done. All too often. And it happens with our money as well. The moment that you bring up money in a church, it gets super quiet. Amen? Oh, you said amen just because you didn't want it to be quiet there. I see what you did. Reverse psychology. I use it on my kids all the time. Anyway, normal when you talk about money, a couple of positions come up. Number one, a defensive position. God has all the money in the world. Why does he need my money? God owns a a cattle on a thousand hills. Well, I got like one half cow. So like, stop, right? We get very defensive. If God has everything, why does he need mine too? Or we get a justified position. This is where where we begin to justify why we don't actually financially 
invest in life change in our church. We begin making excuses and, and, and justifying those excuses. Well, God knows I got a lot going on. God knows I got a lot of financial obligations. And God knows I, you know, I bought, I bought coffee for somebody the other day. I mean, that's like tithing, you know, that's like, that's like, I mean, and I've done that throughout my life, like at least five times. So God's got to, okay, you're justifying it. Number three is an ignorant position. This is a position where maybe you've just come to Christ or maybe you're a newer believer and you didn't realize that scripture calls us, commands us to give. And the Old Testament talks about tithing, a tenth, a tenth of your income to the church. Now there's a lot of people who wanna jump on and be like, yeah, but that was the Old Testament. And then Jesus came, you're right. Then scripture now talks about in the New Testament about not just tithing, but giving uh, generously and sacrificially. So really you have two choices. You can either go the Old Testament route of tithing, or you go the New Testament route of tithing and then also giving generously and sacrificially. So most people usually end up like, well, I really believe in the Old Testament way. I, it's just really a, I'm a big Bible nerd, so I'm just going to stick with the Old Testament. Okay. Right? But here's the problem. You can't be ignorant of that any longer. It's a command from God. It's just a command. The problem is it's a command that we, as a nation, have chosen to ignore but it doesn't make it any less of a command. So there's defensive, there's justified, there's ignorant, and there's also the ownership position. And this one is dangerous because we believe that the money that we have is our money. Well, this is my money. I didn't see God clocking in. I didn't see God with the time card, you know, clocking out of work. I didn't see God working overtime. That's my money. I earned that money. That's fine if God wants to, like, you know, if he wants me to read, if he wants me to show up to church, if he wants me to, you know, help somebody out, I'm good. But like when it comes to my money, don't mess with my money. That's my money. That's an ownership position. Here's what I want you to know. Um, and I say this with all love, but if when you are in a church, if when you're here and we talk about finances and you become defensive, start justifying uh, or, or start taking like an offense, like this is mine. I say this with love. You're wrong. Just biblically, you are wrong. I love you, but biblically, you are not correct. And that is disobedience. Here's what I can tell you. I love our church. I'm so thankful for you. There was a season and a time when barely anybody was being faithful in giving. And we stood up and we shared. We're like, we got to do something because we can't pay for anything. And people are like, oh, we're supposed to give money? Okay. And and we walk through this season. Normally, churches 17 to 20% of people give in a church. And I'm so thankful that we, are, we have over 30% of people in our church that, that give, invest financially. That's amazing. We bring in almost a half a million dollars a year for a budget as a church. We're able to do various things like pay for, pay for this theater and support missionaries and start new churches and pay our staff and rent a facility that we can meet. It's amazing. But that's what we do with 30%. Can you imagine what God would do if all of us invested? Can you imagine? You know, there was a day and a time when the church actually took care of a community. And then the church started doing such a bad job that the government took it on. Did you know that? Do you know whose job it is to take care of the hurt and the sick and the needy? That's our job. Hard to do that when you can barely afford to keep your lights on. Ooh, it got real quiet real fast. Let's read some scripture. Okay. Matthew chapter 25. <laughs> Matthew 25. Jesus says it this way. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. 
To one he gave five talents. These are, these are forms of money at this time. Five talents to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he doubled his money. So also he, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent, <laughs> oh, this is one of those guys that my grandma would say, oh, bless his heart. This is one of those guys. Look at what it says he does. The, the one guy, he does. The one guy who got the one talent went and dug a hole and put the money in it. I was like, what's wrong with this person? Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered these talents to me. I made five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. I went and made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay, pause. If you are the dude who stuck the money in the hole and you're in line behind these guys, can you imagine? Like you thought you did a good job because you dug up the money and brought, oh good, it's still there. And you're like, oh. And then you get there and you're like, oh, these guys doubled all the money and my money has dirt all over it because I buried it in a hole in my yard. It's a little weird, right? It's a little scary. He thought it was going to be good, and then in actuality, he, he figures out that something more was required than just to do what he wanted to do with the money. And so in verse 24, we, say, we see this. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid the talent in the ground. Here, here have back what's yours. But his master answered him, Look at his, look at the tone that this guy has. You wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. My own with interest. So take the talent from him. Give it to somebody who can do something with it. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The fifth position that we take, or we should take, is the correct position when it comes to our money. And it's this. We are stewards of God's goodness. We are called to be stewards of God's goodness. Now, this is not just a financial principle. This is a principle that covers everything because God has been good to us, amen? Come on, church. Has God been good to us? Yes, we are to steward that goodness. And yet, if I'm honest, most often we take his goodness and bury it in a hole. We do nothing with it. We don't expand it. We leave it there. We're content knowing that God is faithful over there. And now here's my life over here. You cannot separate God's goodness from your life. It must be a part of everything you do. If God has been good to you, how can you not be good to others? If God has shown grace to you, 
Why are you speaking that way to people in traffic? Okay, I get that one. But apart from that one, if God has forgiven you, how can you not forgive others? If God has given to you, how can you not give back obediently to him? It's because we do not take a stewardship position, but God has entrusted us with something that someday we will give an account for. You will give an account, listen to me now, for the dollars that you spend on this earth. Why? Because the dollars that you spend on this earth are not your dollars. You will be given account for the time that you used on this earth. Why? Because the breath that you breathe is not your own. It is given by God. Every moment that you have is a moment that we get to steward. See, I just keep saying this over and over, but there is no way that you can separate uh, you can separate who you are in God and who you want to be. Like, you have to authentically follow Jesus. And when you're authentically following Jesus, you can't delineate between who you are in Christ and just you over here. Jesus either becomes the center of everything or he remains nothing. And this is true in our finances. I know it's tough because it's a comfort thing. We want to feel comfortable. Comfortability is the God of this age. Malachi chapter 3, God is speaking to his own people, and they're comfortable. They're not bad people. They're just comfortable people. And God comes to them, and he says, Stop robbing me of what's mine. Do you view the money that you have as God's money? And God allows us to keep most of his money. Think about that. He allows us to keep most of it and steward it to build his kingdom. But the reason this is hard is because we're, we're hitting up against the God of this age, which is comfort. We actually believe God wants us comfortable over everything. Well, God wouldn't put us in a difficult situation. I mean, God wants us comfortable. Well, God would want me to drive the nicest vehicle that I could buy and, you know, put my money out on, put my whole family at risk in getting this, you know, loan. I mean, well, God wants me to drive that. Well, God would want me to have this size of house. I mean, because like, I, I need to show off how, like, what? Where is that coming from? I want, that is like a satanic thought. Like it truly, it truly is. It truly is. I, I'm not trying to play the, 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 the emotional card. Man, if I can just be super, super real for a minute. Whenever I think I'm doing a good job at something, whether it's my walk with Christ or maybe a sermon or something, I don't know. God always has a way of like giving me a left hook. Like last week, I... I I was talking with one of my friends who's a missionary. He's sharing his story. And just tell me what his normal week is like. And I walked away from that meeting feeling, I'm going to be honest with you, really awful. <laughs> super excited for him. Super excited about what God's doing. But super awful about myself. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's just how I felt. Because I was like, who am I to complain about anything ever? I'm going to stand here, like, in front of you in a movie theater in public talking about Jesus. 
most of you are probably going to go out to eat afterwards and have fun and laugh with your families and eat nachos. Then you're going to go home and you might, well, our Sunday afternoon nap, you know, and then wake up. Like, has God not been good to us? What would it look like for us to be a church that takes it seriously? What would it be like for us as a church? What could God do? I really, I know I keep saying this over and over, and I don't know if this is preaching or talk or what. I just, I feel like you're my family, and I love you very much, and I just want us to do this. We, we don't, we're not like hurting for money. We have more money in the bank than we've ever had before. We're giving more money to things than we ever had before. We're, we're going to be building a church. We're going to be talking about that in the next one. Like God is doing awesome things. I'm just wondering what would it look like if we were just obedient? What would, what could God do through us? And the first thing we have to give over is our comfortability. And that has to do with our money. Some of you have never given ever before, ever. We don't need your money. But God requires your obedience. Do you, see, do you see what I'm talking about? Do you get what I'm talking about? I'm not trying to milk you for money. I'm not. I'm not. I'm trying to get you to be obedient. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you, over the next 30 days, we're doing this series. We've got these four, four I'm sorry, we've got these five core values over the next five Sundays. I'm going to ask you to do something radical. I'm going to ask you, to just be baseline obedient. After that, you can go back and be bad, whatever, okay? But for these 30 days, I'm gonna ask you to buy in. And this first one is money. I'm also gonna ask you to be here every Sunday. <gasps> what? I can't, I can't. I mean, the money and now the time? I can't Papa. Okay. Suck it up. I never had a choice growing up, okay? Like, we don't have Sunday school. I don't want to hear you complain about a thing, all right? Okay. I'm going to ask you to give 10% of your annual income. Not all this month, okay? Not like, I mean, well, maybe that's a good idea. I don't really kind of catch up with some things. No. Here's what you do. People are like, how do you tabulate, you know, like tithing? It's really easy. Take your annual income and get 10% of it. Pick 10% of that. Well, is that gross or net? Take 10% of what you bring home, okay? What your, what your, what your dollar amount is, 10% of that. Then break it into 12 payments. That's tithing. I know it's, well, let me go, you know, no, nothing to go through. It, that's how it works. It's that simple, okay? And what I'm asking you to do, if you've never given anything, if you've never given, I've never, I'm not asking you to give a dollar if you've never tithed before. I'm asking you to give what this month's tithe would be in your annual tithing cycle. Does that make sense? We're on the same page? Yes? Okay, so it makes sense. Okay. And I want us all to do that. I want us all to do that. I want to see what a 70% increase in our church would look like in one month. And then I'm going to show you what that looks like, okay? So I'm, I'm literally, here's, here's what I'm telling you, okay? I've got one minute. Don't rush me. Here's what I'm telling you. I'm going to show you what our finances are today. And in one month from today, I'm going to show you what this month's finances look like. So you're only hurting your, you're like, well, I just won't be at church that day. Okay, whatever. You get my point. Weasel your way out of everything. Man, I'm going to show you. And I believe that we're going to see 
an awesome increase. And, and, and the purpose is this. It's not we need more money. That's not it. It's I just want to see what God will do with a church that's obedient. Like we pray these big prayers. But like, I don't want to just be a church that prays big prayers. I want to see God do big things. I really do. And I pray that God does it with our church. I pray he does. I think we have the capacity to do that, but I just know that when we're faithful, he does exceedingly more, exceedingly more. So I'm gonna ask if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes, and here's kind of where it gets real. I'm gonna ask for you just personally to commit to doing this, to commit as a family. That's gonna require you going home and pulling out your calculator and figuring out what 10% of what your household income is. Then break it into 12 payments and saying, okay, this October, this is what it means. You know, there's some months when my wife and I sit down and I say, man, our biggest bill is church. <laughs> and then my mind starts racing like, man, I could get that car or I could do this thing or I could go here. We could go on vacation. We could do, and then it just comes back to, a, I'm not investing in this kingdom. I'm investing in the life that's to come. And nothing is wasted. I'm storing up my treasure in heaven. So I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to make that commitment right now as a family. If you're sitting next to your wife, grab her hand. And I want to make this statement as clear as possible. With your eyes closed, your heads bowed. Like, I want to make this statement. Like, as far as God is concerned, this is just an issue of obedience. This really shouldn't be a question that we have. It's just a matter of obedience. And if you're in a husband and wife relationship, one of you is probably going to be a little softer on this. Like, oh, we got to, uh, I need, whichever one of you is, is kind of tougher, I need you to say, we're going to do this. We're just going to do this. We're just, it's just one month. We're just going to do this. Commit your family to financially investing in life change this month. To worshiping in spirit and truth. To being at church every Sunday this month to bringing your friends into building this together. Father, this morning as a church, we do just that. We commit ourselves to you. We commit ourselves to being obedient to what you've called us to do. God, we are asking that you see us, that you hear us, now you respond in like manner. You are good. You are faithful. But we want to be faithful towards you. We anticipate a great move of your spirit. May we be found faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Covenant Church. For more information on our ministries or to hear more messages just like this, visit us at covenantchurch.us.